Welcome back to another episode of Life With Your Dog podcast. I'm here with my good friend Panos and tonight we have David McKelson. I don't know why I'm having so much trouble pronouncing such a simple name, but here you are. Uh, David from Pro Dog Melbourne, uh, zookeeper turned dog trainer. So I guess we're going to chat about some pretty cool stuff tonight. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, really appreciate the uh, the invite. Um, yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks, fellas. Hey, you're very welcome. It's awesome to have you on. Well, I guess, Luke, you just started it. You're like zoo trainer to dog trainer. Um, I, I always love hearing about captive animals and obviously the crossover, but all just the, the awesome experience. I think most people that are into dogs definitely love to hear about um, captive animals. So, David, yeah, tell us about um, your, your past experiences and kind of what got you into the game and, and yeah, obviously your role at, at the zoo. Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, yeah, from a pretty young age, I had a strong interest in wildlife and, and dogs and I, I landed a job at a, a large city zoo and um, at the age of 19, which is very, very young at the time. Um, so that, yeah, started my career in the in the zoo vet hospital, just basically cleaning some pens and, and doing some basic tasks. And then when you start in the zoo, you, you move around to different departments. So I went to the native mammal section for a little while and then moved to the carnivore department, which is ultimately where I wanted to be. So coming into the zoo, I had a, a strong focus, probably like every young bloke, in big cats and anything that could yeah, bite and Cause significant harm. So um, <laughs> I all the good I, stuff. Yeah. So that was a yeah, definitely a peak of interest. I, I spent a considerable amount, amount of time working with uh, the bears. So um, that was a strong focus of mine for a long time. Very much there were waves in the zoo in terms of how certain things becoming and, and types of zookeeping becoming popular. When I came in in Richmond, started to become a very very big thing in in most major metropolitan zoos, training was on its way in. So, so training historically in zoos was always done in with marine mammals, so seals, sea lions, or typically with elephants. So that were the two, and it was really perceived that if you wanted to care for those animals, you needed to train them. So, so the mortality rate for uh, the age of average age of death for elephants in captivity back in the early 1900s, even to sort of probably 1980s or 70s, was very young. So elephants should live to 60, 70 years of age. A lot of captive elephants were dying before under 30. So mm. there were ways that we could- You mean dying them. dying like of like a natural cause or like having to be euthanized? Look, uh, euthanized uh, most of the time. So mm -hmm. so typically getting foot issues. So um, they'll get an abscess in the foot, which would become- um, badly infected and, and you just can't heal when you've got three and a half tonne on a foot, um, it, it becomes a, a major issue trying to trying to manage that wound. So training became a very important part, but, but for the most part, preventative management. So anyway, going from bears, my interest very quickly became animal training. And what type of bears were they? Uh, Syrian brown bears. Yeah, wow. Uh, so that that were cool, but but most um, most zookeeping work is what we would call protected contact. So you're working um, on the outside of mesh, basically. You're not yeah not hands on. Uh, but I yeah I had an interest. I guess a greater interest in in doing a lot more animal training. So the two options in the zoo were marine mammals or elephants. At the time, there was a big ex exodus on the the elephant department at the zoo I was at. The the female elephant was harming people. She was attacking the uh, the keepers and and wow. 
um, she she didn't have a lot of follow through. So so what what she was doing is they, they would try and exercise and walk her, and as they were walking uh, her around the it was quite a small enclosure at the time. If they felt like it was basically spatial pressure, so they would try and get her to turn right, and you walk on her left, and as you're turning into her, if she felt you're putting too much pressure in, she would just flick you, typically three to four meters that way. Wow. Now, the the main risk with that is if you are between her and a bollard, metal bollard, or a concrete wall. So that's where the main the main risk lied. Now, luckily, every time she did it, she sent people out into an open space, um, which was which was basically a sand. Yeah. So that do, you, were, do, you, do you think that was on on purpose? Like she didn't want to hurt hurt them. Like because we know that elephants are super super conscious and intelligent. Do you reckon she could have done that if she wanted to? Uh, oh, she absolutely. Could, could, it was a choice for sure. Yeah. So, and I've got yeah ample stories of that elephant actually over the years where it, she made some interesting choices. So. Yeah. Um, but she, yeah, so she, yeah, she sent, and then the choice of the elephant at that point is, yeah, do I follow up? So if an elephant wants to harm you at that point, they'll come and they'll do a headstand. So they use that big play in the front of the head. So there's an interesting video on YouTube. If you uh, Google um, San Diego zoo elephant attack, there's a couple. There's a recent one, which is something silly that happened. But if you go back uh, 15 years, you'll see the, the clip that will really Display how powerful and how much they'll really track you and hunt you down if they want to. When they get yeah, wow. And just to go back a sec, you said the training will help with their feet. So abscesses was because the elephants were just standing in one spot for too long and they weren't yeah. moving. Is that was an issue? Yeah, that weight management. Like a pressure well. sore, so, is it? Uh, yeah, basically. So you get a crack in the pads. Elephants actually walk on their toes. So when there's a pad under there, but what actually happens is you'll get a crack in the edge point, basically where the nails are, and then that will run up into the bone. Um, so if you can't treat that then early, um, and, and you, there are there are options um, to treat that, but if you can't handle the elephant and work with the elephant so you can treat it very, very early, that can very quickly change to a severe in infection and yeah. can ultimately create, cause death. But, but the other part of it is just simply exercise. There was a lot of hugely overweight elephants, which then put extra weight and pressure on the feet, also caused a lot of early arthritis, which then affected the sort of young death rate. What was causing their, their excess weight? Lack of activity. Lack of stimulation? Were they, yeah, were like, they also eating more? I mean, but you guys control how much food they get, right? So... Well, well, yeah, you, you could you could you could certainly argue um, you could feed them less. That's um, that would be an obvious <laughs> obvious thing to do. No, so but, like, um, okay, so they were eating um, the right amount but exercising the wrong amount. Let's say. Yeah, 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 and and I think just just feeding them less alone was was n- is not enough. When, like that animal should be walking stimulated range mm. a day, like usually probably fifteen k ish a day. Or so, and if in a, in those small old city zoo enclosures, which were awful. Yeah. The opportunity to really exercise them properly—it was—it was difficult. And I started in one of those exhibits, and it was—and we used to just walk laps and laps and laps. And and the next stage of her training, when we so I came on when others were getting off, and then we bought in. I didn't have the skills, obviously, to work her because I was green to it. But we bought in somebody far more skilled, and we started to develop her. And then we started to walk her through the zoo. So uh, we take her all. We we take her into the lion enclosure. We walk her. Up. We used to move furniture in certain exhibits in the zoo. Um, we take her for a swim in the lake. We were able to do a, a bunch with her. So, um, but hold on, but before you continue with that, 
how yeah. do you make sure the elephant walks with you? Like, like I'm assuming there's no leash for, for the elephant, right? Yeah, yeah. So look, look. Ultimately, it's it's very it's very similar to how we develop dogs. It's ultimately a lot of the same principles apply. You can't get in a fight with an elephant, so you can't just go in and ultimately make an elephant do something. If you weigh eighty kilos and they're three and a half, and a lot of these old elephants too, they've been pushed around a lot in their in their younger years, so they're pretty hardened to it. And if they're not coming after you, they won't generally won't tolerate it. So we, we are talking about free contact elephant training, which is what, what I did, and that yep. mostly doesn't exist now in Western Zoo. Free contact? Free contact. So working yep. in the space with the elephant mm. mostly doesn't exist now in Western Zoos because of the amount of keepers that were getting killed. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really high death rate. So, um, but that's, that, that, was my, that was my job for probably about 14, 14 years. Wow. That's fascinating, and and with that elephant that was that was um flicking people across the the enclosure. What 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 was the? Did we know the reason for it? Was she frustrated? Was she just bored, or was she like scared? Uh, yeah. Look, the training program was very linear. It was it was very like a lot of negative reinforcement is used in training in training elephants. Very similar to sort of older style horse horse training, and. That uh, that's all she was. She was just basically being pushed around. That was there was really no incentive for her, and the relationship wasn't well rounded. So it would be the same reason you went and put pressure on a cane of corso and uh, and just wanted it. To, you didn't know the dog and just tried to walk through yep. it. And yep. uh, in somebody's backyard, uh, you, you're going to have a significant issue pending on the dog. So yeah, so she just needed to. Work with us. There needed to be a relationship that was built on all of the things that we want to build a relationship with our dogs on. And this was, and she was acting out prior to you helping out. So since you started helping, things became like better within the the organization. And like, what 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 were the things besides walking um, the elephants? Um, did you implement to see some change? We were extremely active with them. So she she had a so the elephants. When, when we were running the program and, and we had elephants imported as well from Thailand, from Thai elephant camp, so we ended up with about, when I was there, about eight or nine elephants and we were free contact with about uh, I think six or seven of them, um, including calves at, at particular times. But each elephant had a program. So, and that program consisted of morning health checks, which was like a little training routine that we would do. We do some footwork, check their feet. They each used to get uh, about a half an hour to 45 minute bath each day where we would lay them down on either side and we'd just scrub them to death. And that was very much a bonding time. They'd get heaps of food for that. It would be like doing a physical check session with a dog and just feeding the crap out of them. So it was a, that that allowed you to get in and around the elephant, build a lot of trust um, with with each animal doing that, that process. Then we walk them typically for two to three 20-minute sessions a day, so they get considerable exercise. And then we would we'd often, and it sounds a bit circusy, but we would teach them a lot of skill-based work. So we'd, we'd teach them how to kick a, a fiddle, that type of thing. We'd play soccer with them in the yard. Mm-hmm. Catch a frisbee, catch six. Um, we'd go swimming with them. So the whole, the whole day was built around each elephant would have probably a program which had five or six sessions included in that program, varied sessions, 
And, and we were also looking at the group dynamic and putting work into integrating elephants too. So when you've got a group of elephants that haven't grown up with a lot of other young elephants, that is a dangerous situation. So we would also, as as the years went on, especially when we had cars, we had to do a lot of integration. So, and, and in all honesty, that was just us out there shadowing elephants all day saying, nope, don't do that. Yep, that's good. And that was no. just hours and hours of work. But that was, that was a basic day. So it was, a, as far as training goes, you were basically training all day. Other than picking up poo in the yard, um, which is important, <laughs> we were, we were, essentially doing something with those elephants each day. Now, that's not what happens. So now it's hands-off PC. So there's been a shift towards, well, I guess what they would call a more natural scenario for those for those elephants. Um, I would argue that that may not be a better approach, um, uh-huh. but it's, it's look, perception is an issue. And, and if you're using any form of pressure in a, in a government institution, in a zoo-type environment, then that can create a lot of discussion and, 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 and concert, create concerns and problems. And, and we were very upfront about everything we did. Um, but ultimately, uh, zoos have got to make decisions that um, best suit them for various reasons. But let's not get into zoo politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> There's a reason I'm, I'm in, in the dog game. Um, yeah. yeah. Was, was, was that the catalyst? Into the elephant podcast. Yeah, that's the best. Was that the catalyst for you to, to leave that industry? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, um, so there was... There was a 12-month process where we did a, a, a review of handling practices of, of, of elephants in zoos. So we were presenting, I guess, a case for free contact and there, there was an external consultant involved in, um, in doing a neutral assessment. So, uh, but the, yeah, the decision was made to switch to PC and then within about four months of certainly me departing another four or five staff members also left. So the zoo would have lost about, I think, 80 years of elephant experience or something in, in a very, very short period of time. That's so, Yeah, yeah. So, look, look, I have my, you know, reasons and reasoning for doing that and I, I certainly back that decision. Um, but, yeah, it was a very hard one. If you spend that, we, we do you do long hours in a, in, in a zoo career. So I, we, you'd arrive at about 7-ish and you'd go home at 530 um, you know, I would be, I would spend certainly far more time with those elephants than I would my dogs. So you, that, that was probably the hardest thing, leaving, leaving the animals um, yeah. because they are, they did feel like, I know it's a silly thing to say, but they, they did feel like your own. Like they certainly felt like your own. A hundred percent. No, definitely. Especially if you're providing them that much enrichment and, and then from, from doing that to going, Hey, I can't give you anything now I'm behind the wall. They're like, why are you behind there for? Why, why are you being cold for? Um, has that and since they changed to, to um, um, that policy, has there been a, a change in how many elephants they have and their quality of life? Look, I, cert- I certainly have a very strong opinion on that. Um, I'm not, I guess, I'm not prepared to voice it because people do know who I'm talking about specifically. Sure. Um, but um, but yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that form of management. I, I don't no. think it's the best thing for a highly intelligent species to be left in a captive space the sheer nature of zoos is deprivation you're putting an animal in an enclosed space and and it's your ability to enrich and create dynamic training programs that very like mentally stimulate and help exercise those animals that make a difference like like a lot of us in zoos don't really like zoos um mm-hmm. in terms of what they are like you've got to remember zoos came from menageries so um and and then there's been a, a really strong strategic push to reshape 
what they're about. And, and now they're involved in a lot more conservation-related projects and education programs, and and um, which which is all great. But but there there is a very significantly sad side to zoos, and it's a um, so yeah. So I guess the reason a lot of us work in them is because we want to help the animals best we can and, yeah, and provide them with those things. And if you can't anymore, then I guess you've just got to make make a decision. And when was it that you left? Uh, Twenty thirteen. And and you went straight into do, doing dogs. So I had a I had a bit of a, a a weird sabbatical. I I did so I I actually started my dog training business just before I left the zoo, and then I I went and worked very well it was briefly, but it was nearly two and a half, nearly three years as an operations manager for a a, a wine producing company. So um, based in Melbourne, so that gave me a little bit of. Um, I think business knowledge, yeah. which was really helpful. So I worked basically in a state government system from the age of nineteen. So um, coming into business was a bit of a like neither of my parents really had a strong business background. So um, doing that ended up being very helpful. I was training dogs through that period and, and looking for a facility, and then opened um, Pro Dog uh, in twenty sixteen. Yeah, it's awesome, man. And what has been the biggest? Like, obviously, like working with so many animals and and um and 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 knowing from your bio that you know you 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 grew up with dogs what do you reckon has been like the biggest outstanding thing that you learned going from working with the animals in captivity compared to working with the domestic dog what was like the biggest carryover uh discipline mm -hmm. in what way so yeah so i guess um the probably the number one thing that shocked me when I came into dogs, and this is just I guess being completely honest about it, was the the volume of people I was coming across who were considering themselves dog trainers who certainly didn't have a trained dog of their own and um, really didn't look like they had done much. Now there were certainly a few around that had done a little bit. So that was my first view coming in. Um, and I understand I came through, like most of us, through a, a, a course and I was sort of exposed to certain fragments um, of the of the industry. Now, don't get me wrong, I definitely saw a couple of what I thought were pretty high achievers and people doing really, really nice work. <clears throat> so that was my first view of it. So I, uh, I, I, and I was trying to work out whether I wanted to stay in it at that point. Um, at that point, then I sort of, I, a couple of things caught my interest. Um, Forrest Mickey ran a workshop up at um, Glen, Glen Cooks, um, which, I, which I went to, and then I became pretty obsessed with anything Learberg, certainly Mike Ellis. Some of you guys, I think you both, did you both go to Mike? Yeah. Oh, no, no, I didn't. I, didn't no. I, I just made a one-day show and I was super grateful for it. It was so amazing. It's cool, yeah. yeah. Um, the tickets yeah. sold out in like hours. It was like a rock concert. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, um, but then I quickly, yeah, I quickly saw that um, that plus being introduced to the wider community, I, I, I became very, very humbled, not that I thought I was anything, but I became very humbled very quickly because there was some incredible talent out there and certainly some um, training talent that were beyond anyone I'd sort of been um, or come across in, in the zoo world as well. So, and I've been around some really, really skilled people in the zoo. So, um, but but the number one thing that has always come through for me is just the amount of discipline required, and that and that that's the thing that appears to um, be missing with that fragment. That maybe want to be able to say they're dog trainers for the sake of saying it, um, want the name of it, but 
Um, I, I feel extremely strong about, like training for me, one of the things I hear periodically is people say, and um, people will say, oh, I've been training my dog for five, six months. Um, I need a break. You know, you just got to rest it periodically. Now, I've got nothing wrong with resting, you know, resting dogs strategically, I get that. But resting because you're tired, that's, that's for me, that's not a thing. That's, that's not, like we, the guys in customs have to turn up every day and train their dogs. We at the zoo, every, every day we're at work, we're doing six to eight training sessions a day. When we're not doing that, we're picking up poo and shoveling sand. So that that level of discipline for me has always been an extremely key indicator of whether or not somebody is going to ultimately succeed in the trade. And and, and the people who I've seen come through since my time and and really implanted themselves in the industry and are doing really good things, I think that's the common thread for me that I see in all of those people as they're not waiting for motivation. They are just, they just know no matter how shitty you're feeling in a day, you just get up and you do it. I'm not suggesting you can't strategically rest. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to totally. be. No, no, 100%. It. It's just, um, I think we just need to hold ourselves to a standard. Well, I think a lot of people fall in love with the the, the story of, of having the dog and, you know, knowing, oh, yeah, I know we have to train her, you know, like, and it's always the a idea comment. of having a dog as opposed to actually having one, right? having the life of it, you know, and of course, depending on your dog, if you have a very low drive couch potato, you know, then that's cool. A little companion, like my grandma, she's, she's 97 years old. She's not, she ain't training that dog. That dog's fully trained my grandma, but she's a companion animal. She's living her, her, a good life. All that, that is good. We're talking more about a high drive um, you know, um, working type of dog or, or mainly some of the terriers as well, you know, um, dogs that regularly need proper biological fulfillment, you know, we get the German shepherd cause I've always had one, but you know, the dog's doing X, Y, and Z and, oh, how long did it take to, to train your dog? You know, so let's just say I've had my dog for almost two years. If they, when they, when people ask me, how long did it take you to train your dog? Well, I've had him for two years almost. So that's the answer. Because when I, and even if it's a command that I taught him a year and a half ago, that command is maintained, managed, getting better. We're working towards certain things. The training is not one thing. It is a way of life. And it sounds so corny to say, but that's the life you live with your dog. I, I'm, I'm confused. Now, obviously, I'm going to think like that because I'm a dog trainer. I put a lot of thought into it. But I'm hoping as well that it becomes more of the mindset of the the common person. And I guess it does come down to the discipline. The reason why I said, what, what type of, what do you mean by discipline? Cause a lot of people say you should discipline your dog. And I'm like, do you mean punish your dog? Because discipline is about adhering to a structure and fulfilling that requirement, that responsibility. Discipline is that rather than just dishing out punishment because, you know, and, 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 and I'm happy that you, you said what you said. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely not. I'm not like some hard old elephant keeper that thinks everyone or dogs should be lined up in a – no, we're not like that. But, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think – and the other part is really like in relationship – and we used to say this thing with elephants, like if you couldn't walk out into that paddock and the elephants didn't rush up on you. So I, I've been to facilities and even early days with us, you go out into the paddock and you would have to go and get the elephants – like that, like that attitude in the animal is that tells you your relationship immediately. Like if that animal's not coming up and mugging you at, at the moment you step in, well then you've got a concern. Yeah. Um, actually, I was at the I was at the zoo with my kids, um, 
uh, when was it? Probably a, cu- a couple of years ago. And it had been about six years since I'd seen the elephants. And I went down to the bottom paddock and I waited till there was no one around and I called them down. And immediately they rushed down and started wow. fighting. Um, so they died. That, and that was considerably, like, that was a, definitely a lengthy, how long? Oh, maybe eight, seven, eight years. It was a long time. So, um, how did that feel? Uh, s- sad to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's nice, but. You know, you just yeah. kind of scrap the you get you get the itch again. You know what I mean? It's mm. not, um, yeah, but but yeah, but it's cool. Like it, you know, it goes to show that those relationships do do last for sure. And elephants are extremely. We everyone says elephants are smart, but they are extremely intelligent. They're certainly more intelligent than dogs. Um, they're just they're they're just a little bit more sophisticated in their thinking and their problem solving ability. You can teach them to do like a, what we would term a complex skill. Like extremely fast. You go in yeah, a day right. to try and do it. Like it's not something I will do over the next two, three weeks. So, but but anyway, that that if we talk about um, you know that relationship and just having an engaging relationship with that that animal, well, that applies absolutely to dogs. And and no, I've like I've I've, di- I've sort of dove very heavily into that in terms of dog training. Like I just feel like that underpins now everything that we do, certainly in our programs. Yeah, 100%. You know, I want to talk a bit about re- reactivity and I saw that, you know, I've, I've been watching Instagram and, and, and some of the posts you're putting up and it's it's always a common thing and I wanted to revisit it um, in today's episode where, um, you know, my, my dog's my dog's aggressive because he barks at other dogs and, like, it's such a misconception. A dog's barking and, you know, I'm blowing up at the end of the lead and we, we call that reactivity, which you have to call it something. He's reacting to something. So I guess we could call it that. And most dog trainers hate the buzzword of reactivity, but whatever other word you use, it would still have the same connotation. So what's the difference? You've got to call it something, um, you know, but having those, the three main reasons for reactivity. Um, and I think it was like maybe a post you put like last week or something, you know, that a dog's reacting in prey, defense or frustration. And can we talk a little bit more deeper about that? What are your ways and strategies in terms of, you know, dealing with reactivity and maybe like touch on like the three different um, manifestations of it? Yeah, yeah, cool. So it's, it has become a very strong focus of ours and, and I think the reason I, I got, and I all of ours to be fair, it's probably most of our work these days. I, I, I had True. it, I guess, um, we did a lot early on just because I had dogs. I had access to dogs all the time. So having the, the we have a dog a daycare centre as well. So and we've got dogs that are identified and the clients happy for us to use for training purposes. So having that mix and rotation of dogs I can use for this work. Um, and and we were getting um, I was doing a lot of work during the day. So I would do sort of usually three to four private lessons a day, just just basically on this work for probably the first three or four years I was open. So I was doing lots and lots of reps. And we worked on refining that that process pretty heavily. So, look, as you know, like probably one of the dog types we see that has this this response. Um, Any anytime I do my workshops based around this is um, working dogs or herding breeds. So, there's always a, a high percentage of those types of dogs that are reactive um, that are in. Um, that end up with working spots. So, um, their main driver typically being prey. And the, the the process for us is is look it's fairly I, I think we we 
we tr we've tried to simplify it more and more over, over the years just to make it more palatable and easy for people to implement and practice. But but the basis of all of it is shifting value. So um, the dog has not been developed in a way that has channeled that prey drive into a task with the handler or a very specific task like herding sheep. And, and as a result, the animal is kind of walking around pent up, not knowing where to put that. Oh, like when I was, I think, 15, I wanted to play Aussie rules footy. My mum thought it was a very dangerous game. So I didn't play sport for about a year and a half. I just kind of stalled out on everything. And I just became sort of a ratty teenager. I wasn't, I wasn't awful, but I was just probably a bit pent up and weird. Yeah. And um, you lost that outlet. Completely. And, 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 mm. and, Dad, so that I think I hit about 16 and Dad was like, he's got to play footy. We're taking him down. So two training sessions a week and I was I was playing footy um, on a on a Sunday, I think, and I didn't think about anything else. So and, and I felt calmer in school, everything changed. So just imagine these dogs that have been so severely and purpose bred for a task and then we're not giving them the opportunity to do that. And I think maybe my zoo ground, zoo background also makes me a little bit angry about that as well. I was going to ask if there was a correlation between how we feel about keeping our dogs and having, you know, wild animals in captivity, like it's almost on that same level and does it trigger you on that same level in a way? I, yeah, look, I, th I think so and I, and I think I just want to see like the absolute best efforts forward to provide what the animal needs for biological fulfilment. And, and, and if we can create that, well, then we know we end up with a happier, more balanced dog that does less, you know, shitty, annoying things that frustrate us, even though the dog is really doing nothing wrong. We just haven't provided what the dog needs. Yeah, it's so true. And when we say, all right, so a lot of the times when the dog is lacking in, you know, fulfilling their prey drive and they see another dog or they see moving cars and bikes and, you know, birds, whatever, um, anything moving, it creates that response you reckon a big percentage of that is because the dogs are not being fulfilled outside of that time. Hey guys, it's Luke. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment out of the podcast to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, obviously, we don't just do this show just to hear our own voices. We love the fact that you guys take the time out of your day to listen to our episodes each and every week. And on that note, if you are enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. So whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could hit pause on this episode and, and go and leave a review or a rating on the platform that you're listening into, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other people like yourself find the podcast. Uh, and helps us to reach more listeners and, and hopefully grow the show and grow the community around it. So we'd really appreciate it if you could. And thanks for listening. Absolutely. But I also think you can overcome it with really high level engagement work. So, yeah. um, so one of the things that we started early, and I, I stole it from Forrest, and Forrest, Mickey probably stole it from someone else. But, but I was watching his engagement um, DVD back in the data industry. So, and in he, he talked about using engagement sessions, food chasing and toy play to um, to help dogs um, that have reactivity issues or he phrase it something around. So um, we looked at that and I, and I started doing a little bit. I had a very, very, so the first dog that I really struggled with was this lab. 
that came in and the dog had stupidly high prey and it just exploded. You know that, like that guttural explosion that some dogs have when they see another dog was just so hectic. But this was a dog we could put in daycare and it was, and it loved all dogs. So um, completely different emotion. Um, and, and the way we got this dog over uh, the, the, those issues mostly, you know, as we know, uh, typically these issues aren't fixed, but we, we moderate them and we can moderate them significantly. This um, was through play. So we just we ended up basically isolating the dog away from that scenario for a while and did loads and loads of tug work. And all of that energy that dog was putting into that guttural explosion, if you like, it was, it was happy to put that into tug as well. So, and once we created and shifted value back to the handler, we just leveraged off that to, to counter condition. Um, now, one of the, I got critiqued, I did a couple of vids on that early days and I got critiqued and, and a couple of comments were, oh, look at this idiot. Why are you putting dogs in such high state of arousal when they've already got, um, you know, issues of controlling um, their arousal? Well, look, all I can say is we've done it with probably thousands of dogs now and, 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 made significant to change change to, to so so many so um so i think that concept has really worked well for us is um but but i find with some uh, i find with a lot of these dogs it's not um the the it's it's a bit like having an alcoholic and dangling a beer like to to really shift the brain and shift the value set we need to really take that picture out for a while there's, yeah. there's no point the dog so, – so one of the things I hear a lot is people coming to us maybe from another school that doesn't have much experience in this space. Oh, the dog is great after 10 minutes. So I do some stuff with the dog and the dog – once the dog gasses, it's great in class. Um, and we're hoping to get that down to, you know, seven minutes or six minutes. Yeah. Well, for me, that's a complete fail. Mm. So just how I feel um, like if the dog has had that adrenaline response and and blown up, then then you're now you're, you're dealing with that adrenaline spike and you're dealing with a different dog. So so my feeling is my take on it is we, our enemy is adrenaline in that capacity. I, I don't mind it if it, it's with me, but the dog cannot have that. So um, so then it's not just a based on engagement. We do a lot of work around leash pressure principles as well, and, and none of that is being hard on the dog. Like if I, it's a very hard thing to show in a podcast, but um, and it's probably similar things to maybe you do. But but we just we use angles just very very well to um, to to work dogs into classes and environments without without having them blow up and, and, and leverage off a little bit of engagement to get that attitude back towards us. Hundred percent. So um, it reminds me of like just two of the dogs that that um that I saw over the week. So one of them, like Kelpie, um, he he he's only just turned a year old. So you know, one comment is like, oh, all of a sudden, I'm like, well, all of a sudden it has to happen sometime. It manifests as the dog starts growing up, and around about that ten, you know, nine ten months old is when the dog starts to come awake to the world and decides to do things. So it's not really out of nowhere. It's been building. It's just that people's timing sucks. And it's bloody the most important thing that we need. So the moment you put pressure on, the moment you relieve pressure, the moment you try to reward the dog, tell the dog what's up. So they, they're going to butcher that. 
and they go out to the walk. The dog's rehearsing that behavior, as you said, all right, after 10 minutes, and we can build it back down. But how about we just don't let it occur at the big, in the first place so it doesn't have to become part of the, the pattern of the behavior. We go out, we blow up, we do the thing, we do that. And the dog's just going to follow a pattern. And, and then so many people fit, like fall into that pattern of going, well, I just need to, need to let this unfold so that we can carry on. But then now you're just making... Like you do our training the dog, but everything you want not to happen, right? So, um, so yeah, a lot of the um, my clients, I'm like, look, the dog stays at home. You work in the driveway, work in the backyard. We, you, everything you said, work on that engagement. Give the dog purpose. Tell the dog what you want it to do when the leash is on. Then do all of that in your front yard. And people are like, oh, my God, you mean the front yard? I'm like, yeah, the place where you spend zero time, but it's a big transition between the backyard <laughs> and the world, you know? And it's just we're not, when, you, when you say it so blatantly, it's like, that makes heaps of sense. And I'm like, I oh, know, um, especially for cars, you know, maybe the, the 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 driveway, just where the front yard and the backyard kind of meet is a perfect spot, but on the footpath, you've fully lost it. Like it's not happening anymore. So, um, but then I also think that, yeah, we do superimpose our, you know, our will onto the dog to be like, why would you chase a car for? What are you being so ridiculous for? And I guess- you know, we can continue to talk about this it's, um, over and over again, but how is it that it's going to become a common thing that we do with dogs? Or by the time it, we can achieve that timescale, are they going to remove all the working breeds from access to civilians? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Sorry, can you reframe that question? Yeah, Sorry. so like by the time we make, like so I think in the last decade, training has become like a thing that most people would consider doing with dogs. Yeah. Prior to I, prior to me getting into the industry, I remember my mentor, one of my mentors saying, there's no, you're not going to get a full-time job being a dog trainer. You're not going to make any money. That was what it was like 15 years ago and prior. Like it was very rare thing. And it was like almost like just greyhound racing were the only dog trainers that existed. In the last 15 years, training has become such a, um, a common thing for for a lot of dog owners and a lot of us have like a lot of dog trainers are starting to come up and it's becoming more of a of a mainstream thing so to speak um that has has its has its issues as well of course with the industry being fragmented and all that sort of stuff but by the time we realize society wise oh i'm going to get a german shepherd and training him is my most 100 priority i've got to give him biological fulfillment go and knock on your neighbor's door a door that has a working dog and say do you biologically fulfill your dog they would have no idea what you're talking about so yeah. to, for that to become common knowledge that's going to take what another 20 years 30 years for that to become a thing and in that 20 or 30 years do you think we're going to be in the position where we're not even going to have the access to the dogs anyway. So it's twofold and it's a deep question, but, um, and, yeah. and, and it is a touchy subject, but um, it's just more about the mindset of the people. Are we going to remove the dogs so we don't have an issue with dogs acting out or are we going to step it up and as a society, as a culture, kind of train the dogs as something that is almost a requirement of owning that dog? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, like the whole climate is significantly changing, as you mentioned. So I think there's a few things that I'm kind of interested in in terms of trends at the moment. Um, so, yes, I agree. There is a risk that by the time there is a level of education out there to properly manage these dogs, then um, maybe it's not an option anymore. A lot of that will be based around certain types of incidents and litigation that occurs. That's going to vary state to state. So... 
look, if you live in Texas, you're probably going to be okay. Um, if you live in Cali, then um, who knows what that looks like. So in Australia, um, don't live in Victoria. Um, that seems to be the common thing. Just live anywhere else. But um, but why? What is it about Victoria that stands out? Uh, well, we are considered the nanny state. There's a, just a lot of um, legislation around everything in all sectors. So mm. we just we just and it really should be a case of if you're going to put something new in, something has to come out. But we just add and add and add. And, That's um, not how lawmaking works, is it? Unfortunately, yeah, they're very no. good at adding them, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the other the other trend at the moment is going to be really the heavy commercialising of dog training, which will come through the major the major companies. So that's the next thing that we're going to see. So they're stepping into the service trade. Um, you're seeing various very very large companies now buying vet, lots of vet clinics, stepping into dog daycare, and they're going to step into training heavily. So at the moment they're only working. Um, predominantly with puppy schools, but that's going to start to expand. So, so with that spread and with the level of, I guess, financing they've got behind them and marketing. So even just the money they put into market research, they're going to be able to market and angle that so exceptionally well to the consumer that we're going to be fighting for business. Yeah. So, um, so that's probably the next market trend that that will happen, and it's really up to us. You guys doing your podcast and anyone who can have a voice. This is why I feel quite strongly about doing social media. I'm not just on there. I'm getting old, grey. You know, I don't really <laughs> be doing stuff in front of a camera anymore. Um, I should be using the younger guys at work. But um, but it's very very important that we have an influence and yeah. that we try and get out our. our um, educate people now and, and it's going to become a harder task because they're going to have a really loud voice soon so um so yeah. that in itself will create another series of problems so um i i agree these dogs might not be available at a certain point and um, i'm also concerned for the industry as a whole just being severely diluted i, I might i might be more concerned than most because of what i saw happen in, in the zoo industry yeah. so what we basically saw there was just a dilution of skill set and, and they wanted to create like a mcdonald's version of um of, of animal training across the board that everyone could do for the safe distance so um and that's the real risk of um, our trade, I, I feel at the moment. Yeah, it's a I tough one. I can't answer your questions exactly. But, but well, no, I, I, you, I, think, I think you definitely do. I think we both uh, agree that we don't know where it's going to go. And by the time we can catch up, by the time 20 years happens, are we allowed to put a slip lid on a dog and go, well, if you put pressure on the dog and you say your right. dog's name? And dog, so, like, and I remember when I put a post up um, and it was pretty cool because it happened to catch – the owner going, oh, so you mean, and and the way that I teach, like you know, the the um, one of the engagement trainings, I call it the name game. I tap on the leash, say the dog's name. Dog looks at you. You stop tapping the leash. You mark and reward and run away. Um, yeah. Tap. That's the only time in in how I teach my clients is the first, the only time that the tap, the the pressure on the leash comes prior to you saying anything. Um, yeah. Just so I can get the response that when tap tap happens, the dog's like, hey, what's up? We're gonna play that game. Ah. Yeah. And um and the reason for that is because if I say their name, they may be so jacked up on on adrenaline and and noises in the environment and their desensitization, whatever, is that they may not even hear their name, but they're always going to feel that pressure, especially if they hit the end of the leash. At least they know what to do. If we can perform and rehearse 
pressure on means move with it. And then if I say, in, and if I market and then play a mad luring game with you, then just automatically, because running backwards when your dog's reacting is pretty uncomfortable to begin with. And it's not yeah. natural for most ordinary people to go, hey, walk backwards. People do the weirdest shit because yeah. I don't think they remember the last time they walked backwards. Um, but, you don't, but I tell people, you got to do these games, these sort of engagement games in your own time so that in the moment that you need it, you get the same feeling of the game without having to run around like a lunatic. You can just go tap, tap, chilly. Dog looks at you, good boy. The dog's like, oh, are we going to play that game? And, of course, on an intermittent schedule of reinforcement, we're only going to randomly play that game. The dog's like, fucking say my name. Then, of course, as you are saying before, talking about counter-conditioning. So every time we see the dog, we we may potentially play that game. It's like, yeah, dude. So then so we start changing that value. Um that's a lot of work for somebody to, to, to understand. Me and you and Luke can talk about this going, yeah, I can see where you're going. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. we, you say to somebody, put pressure on your dog when you like on the leash when you say their name automatically, and I don't blame them because I was the same. Pressure is supposed to be bad, right? It's like, well, no, pressure is just pressure. It's just, it's just like a neutral thing um, at the beginning. It's just a thing. And then we make value of it. You can put pressure over the top and freak your dog out, or you can put enough for it to become communication. Just like when I tap your shoulder to get your attention, I'm not slapping you. I'm just going to relative, right? Like it's, it's the same reason yes. you don't use a fire hose to take a shower, but you also don't want it like dribbling out onto your back. There's got to be something in the middle that works, that has exactly. the effect, the desired effect. Good point. And then when Dave was saying, oh, the, like the, the M- M- McDonald's version of training then becomes so vanilla and so bland that it's like, but it's not catering for each individual. And yeah, you make a cookie cutter approach to training. Now you've taken the personal touch and the actual engagement of the training because it's supposed to be one-on-one rather than, you know, it's really hard doing the podcast and answering a question. It's like, I, the dog's not in front of me. It's audio. Even if you could see it, even if I had the dog here, you still don't have the feel for it. And then we have to do that now, like, you know, at least 25 times in a row for us to even understand what we're doing. So it's hard to get something so nuanced for it to become so mainstream because it's like, you know, you're at a party. It's like, so how do I stop my dog from X? It's like, well, like how old your dog? And, you know, and, and like there's so many things. There's not just one answer, you know, and I guess that's pretty difficult. But, um, but what are the different um, forms of engagement training that you like to teach your clients? Like maybe like just the most average type of games and giving ideas to the listeners. Look, I think just teaching really nice. So I guess it all starts with getting the right food. So that that is a major issue, um, as we know, with, with so many clients coming in. Is that and, and often that goes back to diet. So we need to start with nutrition first to then move into creating. Um, and I always talk in currency form. So so if that if I see someone feeding. Um, uh, piece of food to a dog and the dog isn't smashing into the hand, well, there's one of two things happening. Either the value is low or the dog um, is being far too polite. So um, both are not assisting, asking what we want to do. So it all starts for me in, in essentially finding that right food for the dog, also managing weight. So if we've got a dog that comes in, and, and I've, I've, like, varied on this over time, but if I, if I had a dog early days that came in that was extremely heavy, I used to sort of encourage them or, or make them um, go away and get that dog in better shape before we start training. But it's just, look, it's to 
probably too pending the level of obesity in the dog. It's probably too much of a harsh approach. We certainly don't do that now. Um, but getting the dog to um, you should make them get down and give you fifty push-ups. It's like your dog's overweight. <laughs> give me fifty push-ups now. <laughs> um, Jumping jacks. And then, I, look, we just do lots of straight lines, one eighty turns. So um, Mike Ellis style food chasing games and then we'll throw in some power-ups and basic skills like spins and um, little bits and pieces and I like, I like little things like the dog pushing into the hand putting the dog back and getting that you know using a little bit of frustration and um to to build that extra juice out of it so we want to try and get as much as we can out of the dog in that setting um most dogs that don't play that come to us and don't play with a toy um we we don't accept that uh, generally, our motto is we'll we'll do everything we can to work through that. There is the odd caveat where we go, uh, the dog's, you know, 11 and um, it has no teeth, so we'll leave it alone. But for the most part, we will absolutely try and work through that. And, and look, in my experience, I, I find through opening the dogs up through lots of food chasing games and then incorporating that with uh, a flirt pole or similar style movement, very few dogs you won't get chasing a target or doing something or a ball or something at some point in time. So I feel like our success rate in getting dogs to play, even if they're five or six that have never played, is extremely high. Not to say it doesn't come with an extreme amount of work mm-hmm. So um, for some dogs. So one of my team actually sort of cracked her dog. You'll, you'll see a dog periodically on our socials smashing a, a tug extremely hard. What we did to get that dog to play early days was we looked like it. It's like we, but we were trying everything we could to draw some emotion out of the dog. He was extremely stuck and just didn't know what to do with himself. And and just that emotional explosion when all of a sudden he realised he could actually use this thing, this little thing that he'd been feeling all his life. Um, for me, that's probably the coolest part of training. So, in in, um, in that example there, when you said that you worked hard to get the dog to play, would you say that was the dog doing it um, intrinsically? eventually to play the game or we play so you can give me the thing that comes after the play like you're going to feed me or something's going to happen that i like uh, is a dog seeing the play um or the game of tug as play or as a means of getting some other reinforcement after game no al- always for the game yeah cool that's, that's my focus completely yeah. I, I, w- I would feel like i'd failed if it was for something that's and, we'll, and you feel that you're getting most dogs to tap into some form of play or prey drive? Yeah. 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 Not, not, look, not suggesting every dog, but I would say very, very few dogs that we could, like, like classes are a bit different because we have a, like a format. But if it's a yeah. private lesson client who is locking in for, and, and we don't do one off, so we do minimum three, and a lot of our clients would do, you know, 15, 20, um, then, then, through that process, yes. So just keep in mind, I'm not talking about, you know, a puppy program and dog in the no, totally. well, Puppy's a bit different. I'm, I'm talking about um, like a, a reasonably high level of commitment and that's what I'm measuring our success on. If someone comes to free lessons and we've only just started opening the bottle on play and then they disappear, well, I'm not, yeah. I don't for full, full transparency, but I don't consider that a fail. I kind of, I feel mm-hmm. like, sure, we haven't actually had a chance. But, but my feeling is pretty much, yeah, I, I feel like I've had enough volume of dogs now, with dogs that absolutely didn't play, and then we've able to switch on. That, that generally, it's not an issue. Now, level of commitment in the game is different, 
Um, I've certainly struggled with that. To Like my goal is to be able to use it as a reward system. So I want to be able to, preferably, as we know with working dogs, like it should have higher currency value at year and a half, two years. We see a bit of a switch and we'll start using it for our dogs for you know, things at the park and whatever. Not to say don't use food at the same time. Some dogs will prefer for food. Um, but, yeah, some dogs, we've got them to play to a point where you know you're not really going to be able to do much other than a little bit of stuff in the backyard. But still, mm. that's a, a good win, I feel. Yeah, for sure. And also another thing as well that, you know, we're seeing more of in the last couple of years is now that, you know, the it's more common knowledge that, hey, you should be, like, socialising your dog and people are like, oh, wow, I have to socialise a dog, not just, like, have a chain in the backyard like what it was, like, 100 years ago or whatever. So, um and then, of course, now we're seeing people over-socialising their puppies and their young dogs to, so like, run up to every single dog. Dog gets large enough, gets annoying enough that they can't do that anymore. And that frustration leads to, you know, the dog blowing up at the end of the lead because having a tantrum because he wants to go say and say hello to the other dog. Um, do you think that with that, obviously, that's so much, in my opinion, so much easier to stop and to fix than, than a dog that, like, is locked into prey or, even worse, feeling defensive. Um but, but more dogs are busting at the end of the lead, just like that, that Kelpie was saying. He'd react to every single dog, walk up to it, and you play with it. But you look at it, and you're like, oh, my God, the dog's out of control. He looks like he's going to yeah. be aggressive. Um, you, do you see more of that as the years go on, like that that type of reactivity? Have you seen more people letting their dogs socialise by, like, running up and saying hi? Do you think that's been more of a thing, like, in, in Melbourne, the same as it is here? Yeah, so, so meaning – you'll see a dog that's wildly frustrated on lead blowing up and then it will get access. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 no, no, absolutely. It's, yeah, um, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a major issue. I, look, I do notice, and, I, and I'll, I'll take it as a bit of a compliment, I don't know, maybe I'm patting myself on the back, but I, I, I live close to work and I go past a lot of the parks near here. I, compared to six, seven years ago, I see so many more people playing and interacting with their dogs. Now. That's awesome. It's progress. So, isn't it? um, yeah. What would so, you put that down to? Look, it has to be just edu- better education. And then, look, we're, there's, a, there's a lot of trainers around us and there's no doubt a few who are teaching similar principles. We do have huge volume locally. So, um, you know, we run about 60 classes a week and about 80 privates out of our facility, um, plus we've got a daycare centre. Um, so, look, I feel like we have reasonable reach in terms of the community, but um, but there's certainly other trainers in our space. So uh, it, it, there's definitely a shift happening. I also notice now locally... Um, and I never wear my uniform out and about. I get a lot of apologies when dogs rush me. I never got that in the past. So mm. I get conscientious people sort of running up going, I'm so sorry, whereas in the past that didn't seem to exist as much. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel like some of it is promising, <laughs> but I'm sure you can go to pockets around Melbourne and it would be a disaster, like just yeah, for sure. entitled, yeah, and well, I guess like that's that's another thing, like education with Chinese whispers, like, oh, socialization. So like go to the dog park, right? And like let the dog play. And you know, yeah. I, I'm assuming you share the same standpoint of dog parks being dangerous and a place where your dog learns to just fuck off on you and just play with every other dog that that it wants to play with. Um, you run a daycare. Do you feel that um conflicted in a way that I have to provide daycare? Um, for these dogs when I want you to be fulfilling your dog and but you know daycare works because it does help with certain type of socialization and also does help with like you know just financial reasons and there's a demand for it so may as well someone good do it anyway um 
Do you feel conflicted about daycare for like, you know, trying to promote it, but also telling people like, don't rely on daycare to fulfill your dog. You need to be doing it yourself. Uh, yeah, I, I don't feel conflicted now. I, di- I did at the start when I was trying to work out that I guess the smartest way to run it to not compromise on the things that I absolutely believe in. So we teach all of the same things that you're saying and discussing and we don't and we absolutely, we would turn more people away from daycare than any other daycare business in the country. So what's the criteria for being turned away? If you if you call up and say you've got a Kelpie, a Border Collie, a, a German Shepherd, any dog that has been bred to work with a handler and develop that rapport and relationship, a dog with extremely high prey drive will tell you you're going to completely undermine your relationship and your ability to do anything with that dog outside the facility. Um, some people. How does that? How does yeah? How does that typically go down when you say that? It's not. I don't say it so blunt. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me saying it anymore. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, when it is said um, by your so, staff, uh, you know, how do they take that usually? Yeah, yeah. So so typically what there's a couple of things that we do. So um, firstly, if we know somebody, because someone will send an inquiry through. So somebody with that type of dog will generally make the call. So I have a working line shepherd. So if someone comes through with a working line shepherd in the past, I, I would, well, typically fairly days, I take all the calls, but I'd take that call and say, my dog, check my socials, is never in dog daycare and I own the place. There's a reason for that. These are the reasons and rationale. I hope you understand. Now, if you are in a position where you're stuck, you're a doctor, you work 10, 11 hour days, six days a week, and you live in an apartment, you've got the dog, there's no other place to put the dog and you need the dog here for a couple of days um, and you're not really doing any other training that's going to compromise at the moment, we're, like we're happy to trial it. But but there there's certain restrictions that usually when we get to this point, they're like, no, no, I get you. So can we can we do some training? And, yeah. and, we'll do it. and the benefit is we've got a huge comprehensive program, um, including working dog programs, herding breed programs. So we can just switch them into that quickly. There's certainly some types of herding dogs that are super low drive and chill. So they mm-hmm. might call up and be like, no, but my border collie just loves lying on the couch and licking dogs in the face. So um and, and we don't so so we'll compromise on it to a degree, but it's an honesty policy. So we make sure that we give all of the information and education on it in a respectful way, and then ultimately it becomes their choice. But their dog still needs to be suitable. So so daycare is very much an environment for lower mid mid level low drive dogs that. Um, and, and there's a couple of things that we do with our daycare program that we're, we're quite strict. So um, dogs need to come on the same day um, of the week, every week. You're locked in to 10, 20 or 30 consecutive weeks on that day. So we develop a group. We ask all of our clients not to take your dogs to, to dog day, uh, to dog park outside of that. This is the chance for them to socialise. We've got some of our level three clients who use our daycare service. So contextually, they know in that space, they can play with dogs and do things with that dogs. In our four walls, it's quite a specific environment. It's nothing like a park. And then when they're with the handler, that is um, the goal. And we don't see a compromise with dogs that I would say are kind of mid-level drive. So, um, and we really don't have any high, really high-driven dog. It doesn't last in daycare. So, um, um, so that, that's how we, um, we run. I like that. Um, that. That makes sense. That works well. It's a good policy. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and it's not it's not a high arousal daycare. Like, you, there's not if you walk into our daycare, anyone who's been to our daycare always comments is like outside of check in, check out. There's no dogs barking. Um, the energy level, dogs are playing, but it's moderate. So arousal is the killer. So um, I do a lot of dog intro workshops and um, and training work around that. And um, as we know, um, if you if you can mitigate and manage arousal, typically you're going to avoid the fight. So because that's what creates pressure and and the situation. So we have very set protocols in terms of managing arousal levels. If if any like if I walk into that room, like you'll feel it straight away. If it's a little bit up, immediately I'm shouting out that it needs to come down a little bit, and um, and we moderate it. So it is. Um, I. I don't love daycare, dog daycare. I'm going to be open with that. Like I don't love it as a service. I feel like it holds value for certain types of dogs and certain types of people in the community who have certain living circumstances, and I feel like we can do it exceptionally well. So um, what is it that makes you say you you, you wouldn't or you don't love it? Like what, what makes you feel that way? Well, I think the the... In my ideal world, I would rather people put a lot more energy into just developing their own relationships with them. Like not having them outsource it, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, that's my ideal. So, um, but but the reality is, is, you know, there is some level of compromise in that. So, um, I certainly like our daycare and I like the daycare environment that we created. I, you know, I think it's a, it's a good, um, it's certainly a, a good environment for dogs to be in. Um, but we would always deter certain types of dogs from coming. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, 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 the, and the risk for us in that is it's a bit of a catch-22 as well because we do we do have some issue because we're dog trainers. People say, well, why can't you take and handle my German Shepherd? You reckon you're this amazing dog trainer. You're saying you can't take my dog uh, into your dog daycare environment. Um, so, there, you know, there are we have conversations at times that are more difficult. With yeah, do, you ever, sure. do you ever get people who are trying to sign their dog up for daycare thinking that that will somehow equal or, you know, be parallel to training? Uh, no, because just because we're very clear about what. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So once again, we, we tell do, them it's not a training. But before story. that, do you, does like, does that, do inquiries like that come in? Oh, for sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. there is a, They're conflating yeah, it's a very, it. different, very different client base too. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And look, and I guess as a business model, it makes sense. Everyone bring the dog here, stay and train. We can do that, and they could, and you could probably make some coin, and the and the dogs would do the things. But we know, we know that for a few reasons. First of all, you're bonding with the wrong human. You're, um, yes, I could handle your dog if I brought him here. But first of all, I'm not standing here (laughs) while I'm, you know, like we've got, um, you know, people looking after the daycare. They're not be may not be the highest level trained. Um, dog trainer that are looking up the daycare and that just defeats the purpose of like anyway when you have like annoying conversations like that it's all very fun and exciting but you know you don't argue with an idiot because they bring you down to their level beat you with experience so just like just <laughs> yeah, like it yeah. just is what it is man just leave me alone right <laughs> um but when we did dog yeah. minding um at our house we did it for like you know maybe around six years um it was only clients dogs that are allowed to come um, I have to like make sure, and I knew all the dogs. So I'm like, yeah, that dog should be fine. But I always came, let's trial it out. Let's make sure that it works out. Obviously I can't screen at the same time with all the dogs that are going to be there, but we never really had any issues. I think there was one time there was a bit of a drama, but Tanya sorted that out. Um, her motherly instincts kicked in and she told the Doberman, the cattle dog to stop fucking around. Um, but, um, 
But besides that, we we were pretty good. But you got to screen it. And th- there were certain dogs. I'm like, I'm definitely 100 not looking after your dog. I could probably control it, but I don't want to be up 24 hours a day for the next you know seven days looking after your dog. So it does. And I remember back in the day, I didn't want to ever offer walking services because when I first started, I had time to do the dog walking. But I was really staunch about no. Actually, how about you walk your dog? Um, and I'll show you how to walk your dog. And then don't ask me to walk your dog because you should be mm. walking your dog. I'm very Or you might this. end up with, again, with like, I don't know, walking clients who are like, oh, can you just teach just, him this? Or just just do, teach him that. Well, like just, just exercise yeah, you can my pay dog me so I can- if you want to. Like if that would help you, you can pay me for the training, but that's not a walk. Yeah. Look, it's obviously, a, it's very, it's a very common dog, dog trainer's kind of frustration to be like, you know, to have these sort of common issues of, just train your own dog. I don't get it. Didn't you get a dog to train it? Like, I'm very confused about this conversation. And what do you mean you have, I have what I, what do you mean I have to train a dog? So obviously that's very frustrating. And I think that's changing, but just like the socialization advice was that people didn't socialize. Now they do, but now they over socialize. So information has to be of quality when it goes out to the masses. And how do you control quality of information? The best thing we can do is just continue doing what we're doing. And, um, and obviously, you know, compete with the the other side of the of the industry. But I think the the best, you know, the best um revenge is massive success. So if you can just continue doing what we're doing and if the ship's gonna go down, we'll go down with it clearly where we know the the dramas that are ahead of us and we're still here doing what we're doing. So we're gonna die fighting um or we're gonna um win. But um can you tell us a little bit about your own personal dogs? Um how many do you have and what breed and age are they? Uh, so I've got a working line German Shepherd, um, on Simbi Dog, and um, so she's now uh, about six and a half. So I've done a lot of lot of work with her. She's really really good dog, drivey dog. She's my first working dog, um, and um, we did a we did a VH with her uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe now. Yeah, nice. She's got a she's got a few discs, so. Um, so which is limited what we can do. So in the back of her spine, so she can't. She's very fast flat um and uh, i keep it pretty fit and strong we do we do a lot of training and work but i can't uh do any any jumps with her so um uh-huh. i noticed from an early age she was jumping a one meter jump like reasonably early but it always looked very uncomfortable for her so um yeah so and victoria we're very restricted in terms of what we can do in terms of any dog sport as well yes um a lot frustrating of issues, um in vic as well and I've got a little um, Chihuahua cross, so who's nice. um, uh, like a little yeah little family family dog. So I've just started doing a little bit of work with him, and um, he's actually he's pretty punchy driver. We got him when he was three. Uh, yeah, we just got him as a pet for the family, but he's good. Like he bites a little bite pillow, and he's got a lot of <laughs> a lot of got good aggression. Extremely defensive though, not like not in the game, but he, he can be. He's a um, he's a Chihuahua, so isn't that yeah. standard? That's given, right? Uh, yeah. What's the coolest thing you've taught him so far? Uh, oh, we've just started. It's not that cool, but he trades. We've been doing middle with him. Just and, and so I want to do, I want to do it like a BH routine, but in middle. And then, and I know it was started, but now I think, oh, well, I might as well just do it in heel. So I'm going to switch it into a focused heel. Nice. And, um, and I don't know, like, like if I'm, I'm drowning at the moment. So the idea of, um, Committing to anything is crazy, but I, I have some little plans with him that I wouldn't mind. Um, yeah, wouldn't mind playing around with. So he's yeah, he's a good little dog. I can't say I've ever seen a focused heel <laughs> video of a yeah of a true house. I'd love to see that. Like, you'll send us through. 
He's, he's got a nice little march in his middle, so he's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, nice. it's coming. Um, but, I, yeah, he was he felt a lot of spatial pressure at the start. So that was a lot of it was really difficult actually getting into Like it's quite a simple behaviour, but it took a bit of work. Um, but anyway. Mm-hmm. I guess it's, it's difficult even with uh, my little Maltese Pom. When I do the middle with her, she like bugs out because she's the size of my shoe. So like, and then like it's hard to like lure her so low down and yeah. and any and try to like fade that away is like so much difficult than having like a dog that's like normal height that you can just like it's just a little bit of a bend of the spine where you try to walk the middle and then you step on like a little hair of her foot. She's like ah, oh my god, you're freaking too sensitive. Um, There's a really famous um, Chihuahua. I'm pretty sure it's the NBA. Do you follow that guy? Cast. It's like the username's like Casto, Castoe Nev or something like that. It's a little chihuahua. He's trained this dog to do everything. Like he does mini basketball. He'll climb up on his back. Like all kinds nice. of crazy stuff. Yeah. And th- and th- and mind you, in front of a full stadium of people as well. So it's pretty impressive. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. huge. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's. I think I know. I do know what you're talking about now. Yeah. Um. I I think it's really important as a dog trainer, um, to have the different caliber of dog. I think if you're just standard, like, you know, a shepherd or or, or, or like a Kelpie or whatever, it, like, yeah, it's cool. These are big dog techniques that you're showing me. I've got a spoodle. It's like, well, I'll just pull out my little multi-pom and show you the same thing. It's the same technique, just intensity and, you know, everything's like, you know, there's obviously going to be some changes, but it's important to show that, well, I don't just have a bias approach to the training. And I really do think advice to dog trainers, like, you know, just accumulate heaps of dogs, but um, have a larger medium and a small and do the work with all of them. So you can show that they are um, techniques for all dogs and not just a specific um, breed or size of dog. I think that there is a big misconception you, that dog training for my small dog. I don't really think that's the case, but I think that could be a bit of a leftover sort of, cultural thing i've got the small dog who cares what's the big difference like well small dogs need training too what are you talking about you need to fulfill them and as much as you do um any other dog just obviously maybe not as much you know intensity than a working dog obviously but um to wrap up my brother can you give us um one thing that dogs have taught you you spend a lot of time teaching dogs but um but I think it's always important for us to acknowledge that dogs are teaching us many invaluable things. And um, if there's one something that's at the top of your head that you can maybe share one with us. one for dogs and one for elephants. Yes, please. Damn. You know, I think the thing I was talking to someone about it the other day. I think I, th- I think the thing that I like I care as much about these days developing trainers and and my team. So. Um, and and a lot of the now I, I don't now this can sound this can go both ways this comment but but I I feel like really learning to develop the dog the dog from a relationship perspective first like build that rapport and relationship and the value that brings and what you can get out of the animal from that perspective has really changed me as a as a manager and, and a leader of a business so my number one desire with any of my team is to build a relationship and rapport first and then try and create obviously um criteria off the, the base of that so i th- I, I think I, I just see a lot of relationship in all of it and i go back and forth on 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 a lot of that so i, I think uh, and, and like dogs have definitely dogs and elephants both soften me over time like coming in I definitely, when I started working with animals, I was um, 
certainly with elephants, I was like, oh, I've got to survive this, you know, and, yeah, I'm a tough guy, blah, 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 blah. Um, and you certainly, nobody's a tough guy next to an elephant. And and you have to build that rapport, build that relationship. Um, so it's definitely, I think it has definitely, as the years gone on, it's softened me. And now I'm a parent. So I've got two young kids, a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So um, I think it's a better time for me now to have children than, um, than um, when I was much, much younger for sure so I think it has given a lot of um, parenting skills and I do say things to my wife about my kids or to my kids and my wife will look at me and say why are you talking to them like they're dogs or why are you referring <laughs> yeah to them how like has your <laughs> how yeah how has your understanding of uh, let's say operant conditioning helped your parenting <laughs> <laughs> operant and classical and, and mixing the two I think is very yeah very operant and classical yeah definitely so I, think, 100%. Like, I think getting the emotion right first is is ultimately what matters so sure reinforcing behavior appropriately um is going to be important um but ultimately creating the right emotion is um I think is when I think that should be the drive for family and unit and and, and of course when you're trying to encourage anybody any living being um you're right and I, and I love that because it, it is relationship first, then start calling the shots. We'll do the work, but like, let's, what, what's our why? Why do we do it? And why would your child want to listen to you? Well, you hope that when, you know, they're 30 years old, they want to hang out with you. Then at least you know that they like you. And if they like you, then and your, you know, your best interest is everything good for them. You know, then that's how it works. Rather than trying to force them to be good, you make them resent you. Then they have like, you know, some daddy issue that, you know, like, and that could, very quickly backfire um just like you know when people say well you could teach a dog to do something by punishing them well you can teach them to not do something but you can't teach them to do something through punishment you know and and knowing the difference and i think that that would be really cool to look when i've wanted to work with animals i quit um business studies and i was a groundsman that ran with grace course and my the first thing was i'll go to do animal studies so I can get into captive animals because I want to work with big cats. And when you said that, I'm like, yeah, I want to do that when I was literally 19 years old. And um, and then obviously, you know, things worked out the way they worked out. But um, but I, I'm sure it would truly humble you to be around an animal that is like so much bigger than you. So that much weighs more as much as two cars. Far out. I, I couldn't imagine it. And and look, you know, being 21 years old and starting the business and working with animals, um, yeah, my ego was in the wrong place because I was 21 and I probably thought I knew things that I didn't and I paid the price for a lot of my mistakes and the dogs definitely taught me when I stepped over the line. And, um, you know, but, but, it, but it is, and I think it's, it's true, the more you work with behaviour and trying to encourage other creatures and then after some time of that raising a human being i think it does certainly help um especially the compassion side of it um rather than being hot-headed and you know just being a dictator because no one no one likes that right yeah 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 that being that authoritarian like i don't i don't yeah i'm glad we've generally shifted away from that model yeah it's you know and and of course there's always a fine balance between being firm and fair and where does that where does that lay? And uh, that, you know, that's a whole another po- podcast conversation. We can do that next time. <laughs> it's been awesome having you on the show, bro. Thank you very much, David. Um, Where can the people anything- find you? Yes, that's what I was going to say. 
Um, I'm actually coming up your way for a workshop. So in Greater Sydney with um, uh, All Sorts Dog Training, um, Debbie Coleman. So I'll be up there on the September 16th and 17th. So I'm running a leash aggression workshop and reactivity and um, an engagement workshop up oh, there. Cool. So, um, so that'd be cool. Um, but uh, hit us up on, on Instagram, Pro Dog Training and, um, and, and Facebook. Yeah, and, I love um, your socials, mate. You, 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 you really uh, nailing the game with the, with the reels. Yeah, we're busy. We've got, I think we've got about 250. A lot of them are recycled now. We've got about 250 in the bank. So um, we, nice. do, we do reuse them a little bit. There's a few there. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely, I feel like it's important. We've got to get the word out for sure. And uh, and good on, good on your fellas for doing what you're doing. Thanks, Thanks for coming on, mate. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos, and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at np underscore dog underscore training, my website, npdogtraining.com, or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening, guys. My name's Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's K-I-Z-U-N-A, canine, C-A-N-I-N-E, dot com, dot A-U. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Kizuna Canine Training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.